In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O God, who made the abbot St. Benedict an outstanding master in the school of divine service, grant, we pray, that putting nothing before love of you, we may hasten with a loving heart in the way of your commands. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So brothers, this morning we come to our final conference, but we'll have conclusions uh, this morning on the thoughts in the homily at Mass time. But as the most part, this is our final conference. So I would say that no talk on St. Benedict would be complete uh, without mentioning the importance of the sacred liturgy. And the reason why I'm saving this for the very end, because I believe this is the most important of all things. So throughout his rule, St. Benedict describes in detail how his monks are to pray the liturgical hours. What is more, his monks are still known as the liturgical scholars of the church. And uh, Dom Alquin Reed even once said that it would be redundant to say the Benedictines were somehow related to the sacred liturgy. The two go hand in hand. And this is clearly seen in another famous line from the rule. Let nothing be placed before the work of God. Let nothing be placed before the word of God. Now in St. Benedict's time, we hear of uh, the work of God. So one of the Benedictine motto is ora et labora, pray and work, right? Pray and work. So in Benedict's time, work of God was a multi-layered phrase. It could, of course, mean going about and doing his will and his work. It means spreading the gospel and all sorts of other things. But for St. Benedict, it was more refined, and for him it meant the sacred liturgy. Nothing then is to be placed before the sacred liturgy. That's why when we talk about uh, keeping holy the Sabbath, the primary way we keep holy the Sabbath is by placing God first. The primary way we place God first is by entering into the celebration of the sacrifice, the Mass. The primary way that we do that is by giving something to him that is due to him and him alone. No one else, no other creature, only the Creator, and that is our praise and worship. So nothing can be placed before the sacred liturgy. And you can see this if you ever visit a Benedictine monastery. If you have, you understand it. If you haven't, I strongly encourage you to do so. Because as soon as the bell rings for mass or the office, the monks stop what they are doing. What they do is they head immediately toward the chapel. Similar to when we have the bell ring, we come to the chapel, which is wonderful. On a deeper level, if you were able to pray with them, you can see an even more profound understanding of this phrase at work. For the monks do not rush the liturgy, nor do they prolong it. They do not give unseemly, unseemly pomp and circumstances, circumstance, but always the proper amount of dignified solemnity. In other words, what they do is they give the liturgy its due, no more and no less. They give the liturgy its due. For by doing so, they give due honor and adoration to God. They fulfill the virtue of religion. So praying with the Benedictines, especially during the divine office, is like stepping out of time. 
Now, you've had opportunities to do that, especially when we pray night prayer. That's part of the office. That's a part of the office that uh, when I was ordained a deacon, that I made a promise to pray for the rest of my life. And so you've had an opportunity to be a part of that. So during the divine office, it really is like stepping out of time. They have been doing more or less the same thing since their founding, which is all the way back to the fifth century. And the collective wisdom and practice of the years shines forth in the words they speak and they chant, in the postures of their bodies, and even in the silence of the church at, at various points of the liturgy. Posture is very important for us during prayer, and we should really never uh, pl uh, play it down. And I'm, I'm drawing a blank on which, of the saint, which saint said it, but one of the saints made the comment of when you're having a difficulty in praying, change your posture. If you're sitting, uh, kneel. If you're kneeling, sit. If you're kneeling, stand. If you're standing, sit. Change your posture. That might be a remedy for you to allow you to go deeper into prayer. So this is all because what they know, what they are about, and what they are praying, uh, what they are praying in the liturgy of the church. They are not only about their own work, but rather they're about the work of God. And when this realization sets in, liturgy changes from something that is done into something that is truly lived. It begins to influence every moment and action of their lives, which become themselves liturgical. They become living sacrifices and oblations to God. As St. Paul says, we are to offer our lives as a living sacrifice of praise. Where do we do that? We do that within the liturgy. How do we do that? We do that by offering our lives um, and uniting our lives with the sacrifice of the Mass. Now there's a point in the liturgy, and you might have seen this last night or yesterday and noticed it, and you'll see it again today. There's a point in the liturgy where the celebrant turns to the assembly and says, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable. And then the people in turn say, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands. Praise and glory his name for our good and the good of all his holy church. If you notice what happens when he does that, he turns and he faces toward them. And unlike any other time, he continues that turn. He makes a complete 360. Every other time, he turns and he turns back the same way. But at this moment, he makes a complete 360. Why? What is he doing? He is turning. He's opening his hands. He's saying, pray, brethren. But he's gathering all the prayers of the assembly. He continues that turn, and then he offers them to God. So that is the moment when you are offering over all your hopes, your dreams, your joys, your sorrows, your entire life as a living sacrifice of praise to God. And the priest who presides over the body receives them and offers them to God. What a beautiful time, beautiful way for, for us to be able uh, to do something, something like this. So that is that moment when we, when we do that, when we offer everything over, over to our loving God. So when the realization sets in, liturgy changes everything. Again, it is something that is done to something that is truly lived. And it begins to influence every moment, every action of our lives, which become themselves liturgical. They become living sacrifices of oblations to God. Uh, all makes sense. 
Rather than being only what we do when we are vested for Mass or when we come to Mass, what happens is Mass overflows into our day. The office, it permeates time with hearts raised to God. The other sacraments and sacramentals render all aspects of our lives and even of creation back to God, their source and end. The world takes on a liturgical character inasmuch as it is taken up in our daily life, in our daily prayer, and in our daily praise of God. So, obviously there are many parallels in, the, in our lives, um, especially as we enter into the celebrating of the sacred liturgy, and we do so with reverence. So, we must be excited about liturgy, because we know what it is, we know what liturgy is, we know what the Mass is, when the time comes for us uh, to enter into the Mass, especially on a Sunday, it should not be put off. It should not be the last thing of the day. It should not be the last thing on our list. It should be the first thing on our list. Because if it's the first thing on our list, that means we're preferring God first, right? Replacing Him first. It's the first thing on our list. We're preferring nothing to Christ. So it has to be something that is preferred. Nothing is to be referred to the work of God. So finally, what I'd like to do is I'd like to end this talk, or it's a bit of a lengthy uh, portion of it, or this section on liturgy, specifically um, with how it is that we actually enter into the celebration of the sacrifice of the Mass. And I said a little bit earlier, but I think it's very important for us to go deeper into it. A proper celebration of the liturgy really falls under religion. For by doing so, what we do is we fulfill the church, what the church asks of us. And as the bride of Christ, which we are, the mystical body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, the church tells us how her spouse is to be worshipped. And God knows uh, better than any of us ever could how he should be worshipped, and how he should be adored. Now, the section I'm about ready to go into right now is intended for priests, but it's also intended for you. But it's intended for priests. But I want you to hear it um, through the ears of a layman, Catholic man pursuing holiness, which allows you to understand the liturgy and how the church proposes the liturgy and how the liturgy ought to be celebrated. There is no need to dive into the minefield that is rubrical interpretation that often leads nowhere except bruised egos. But how about instead we just plan to be faithful and prudent stewards of what has been handed on to us from Christ himself through the apostles. One of the things when a man is ordained to the priesthood, we talk about him being a good steward of the mysteries. And what is a steward? A steward is somebody who doesn't own something, but he has guard over it. He has watch over it. He has care over it, right? Be like a shepherd. He doesn't own the, the sheep, but he is to be the one who watches over it, uh, cares for them, and protects them as well. So as a priest, when one is ordained, he is to be a good steward of the mysteries that are entrusted to his care. He doesn't own them, but he's to watch over them, to guard them, and to prepare them well. So 
terms for priests, this doesn't mean that we go unprepared, nor should it mean for us when we go to Mass. Nor does it mean we don't know what we are supposed to do as if faith and fidelity were blind. Rather, it means that we do know what we are doing and that we know it well. We are priests, we are the priests, we are the ones sent to study the stuff and by our ordination are meant to lead people in the liturgical worship of God. If we don't know our roles, we will not lead well, and thus the people will be deprived what is rightfully theirs as baptized Christians. Ultimately, we will not be fulfilling the most important aspects of our priesthood. Therefore, priests know the liturgy and celebrate it well. Remember what you were told at your ordination. We all hear this, and these are words that hit us to the heart, to our core. Understand what you do, imitate what you celebrate, and conform your life to the mystery of the Lord's cross, end quote. To emphasize all this, please bear one last and long citation that's given to us from Pope Benedict. Again, brilliant and a holy man. Well, not a member of the, the Benedictine uh, community, he certainly knew, certainly knew what it meant to live the liturgy and live it well. And this comes from his Chrism Mass homily in 2008, during which he speaks about the service of the Lord. If you really want to know uh, Pope Benedict XVI's mind on the liturgy, there's a great book. Um, take your time with it. It's called The Spirit of the Liturgy. It's a beautifully written book, but I highly recommend it, The Spirit of the Liturgy. You can, and again, take your time with it. It takes a while to get through it, but boy, is there a great reward that comes from it. So this was a 2008 homily, a chrism mass homily, which he gave on the service of the Lord, specifically um, as priests in liturgy. So given our context, what he describes can be seen as the liturgical aspect of the virtue of religion. Notice specifically what he says about our understanding and our living familiarity with the liturgy but also the possible dangers that he mentions in this regard, given our regular contact with the same. So he said, in the Old Testament text, the word service has an essentially ritualistic meaning. All acts of worship foreseen by the law are the priest's duty. But this action, according to the rite, was classified as service, as a duty of service, and thus, it explains in what spirit this activity must take place. With the assumption of the word serve in the canon, the liturgical meaning of this term was adopted in a certain way, to conform with the novelty of the Christian cult. What the priest does at that moment in the Eucharistic celebration is to serve, to fulfill a service to God and a service to humanity. The cult that Christ rendered to the Father was the giving of himself to the end of humanity. Into this cult, this service, the priest must insert himself. Thus, the word serve contains many dimensions. In the first place, part of it is certainly the correct celebration of the liturgy and of the sacraments in general, accomplished through the interior participation. We must learn to increasingly understand the sacred liturgy in all its essence to develop a living familiarity with it so that it becomes the soul of our daily life. It is then that we celebrate in the correct way. 
It is then that the Ars Celebrandi, the art of celebrating, emerges by itself. In this art, there must be nothing artificial. If the liturgy is the central duty of the priest, this also means that the prayer must be a primary reality to be learned ever anew and ever more deeply at the school of Christ and of the saints of all the ages. Since the Christian liturgy by its nature is also always a proclamation, we must be people who are familiar with the word of God, love it and live by it. Only then can we explain, we can, can we explain it in an adequate way. To serve the Lord, priestly service precisely also means to learn to know the, the Lord in his word and to make it known to all those and to, to he entrusts it to us. Lastly, two other aspects of the part of service. No one is closer to his master than the servant who has the access to the most private dimensions of his life. In this sense, to serve means closeness. It requires familiarity. This familiarity also bears a danger. When we continually encounter the sacred, it risks becoming habitual for us. In this way, reverential fear is extinguished. Conditioned by our habits, we no longer perceive the great, the new, and surprising fact that he himself is present, speaks to us, gives himself to us. We must ceaselessly struggle against this becoming accustomed to the extraordinary reality against the indifference of the heart, always recognizing our insufficiency anew and the grace that there is in the fact that he consigned himself into our hands. To serve means to draw near, but above all, it also means obedience. The servant is under the word. Not my will, but thine be done. With this word, Jesus in the Garden of Olives has resolved the decisive battle against sin, against the rebellion of the sinful heart. Adam's sin consisted precisely in the fact that he wanted us, he wanted to accomplish his own will and not God's. Humanity's temptation is always to want to be totally autonomous, to follow its own will alone, and to maintain that only in, his, in this way will, be, will we be free, that only thanks to a similarly unlimited freedom would man be completely man. But this is precisely how we pit ourselves against the truth. Because the truth is that we must share our freedom with others, and we can't be free only in communion with them. This shared freedom can be true freedom only if we enter into what constitutes the very measure of freedom, if we enter into God's will. This fundamental obedience that is part of the human being, a person cannot be merely for and by himself. Because still more concrete in the priest, we do not preach ourselves, but him and his word, which we could not have invented ourselves. We proclaim the word of Christ in the correct way, only in communion with his body. Our obedience is a believing with the church, a thinking and speaking with the church, 
serving through her. What Jesus predicted to Peter also applies to, also always applies. You will be taken where you do not want to go. This letting oneself be guided where one does not want to be led is an essential dimension of our service and it is exactly what makes us free. In this, being guided, which can be contrary to our, plan, our ideas and plans, we, experiencing, we experience something new, the wealth of God's love. Beautiful homily, beautiful words. And as I say, he spoke it at the Chrism Mass. The Chrism Mass primarily is the Mass where the bishop calls together the priests of the diocese um, they renew their promises of priestly service, and it's where he blesses the oils and sends them back to the church. These are the oils, the local parishes, that are to be used throughout, throughout, the, um, throughout the year, the, 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 the year coming up. It's also a time where many of the, the religious and the lay faithful will come to that particular mass, but the primary reason for, the get, for that gathering is to strengthen that, that uh, that bond that a bishop has with his priests. And so here you have uh, the successor of St. Peter, the Bishop of Rome. Here you have him gathering the priests of, the, uh, of, of Rome together and giving them this beautiful talk. And I can imagine, and hopefully as you just imagined too, how edifying those words were and continue to be to this day. So, you can hear that this was spoken to priests, but this is also spoken to you. To come to know the liturgy, just to not leave that up to the priest to know the liturgy, but to come to know the liturgy, to study the liturgy, to have a greater familiarity with the liturgy. It's like when you first meet somebody, you get to know them, and over a period of time, you get to appreciate them more and more and more. And I think that's the same thing with the liturgy but on a supernatural, a supernatural uh, level. The final story I want to share about one of my saints, and that's the Saint, uh, Saint John Vianney. So Saint John Vianney originally was the patron saint of parish priests, but um, in the year 2009 and 10, Pope Benedict XVI uh, called for the year of the priests. And in doing so, what he had was this model for the year, and that was St. John Vianney, the icon, right, for the priesthood. The ultimate icon of the priesthood is Jesus Christ. He's the eternal high priest, and every priest conforms himself to Christ. But the saint, the icon that we had was St. Was John Vianney. And we were really blessed that year because he expanded his patronage. He took it from the patron saint of parish priests to the patron of all priests. Wonderful man. Um, he was somebody similarly to Saint uh, Louis Martin, who couldn't make the Augustinians because of his uh, lack of knowledge of Latin, or somebody like uh, Blessed Stanley Rother, our Oklahoma um, priest, who was martyred in, I believe, 1981 in, uh, in uh, Guatemala. And so he too struggled with Latin. And because of this, he almost wasn't advanced toward holy orders, but he had a wonderful Monsignor who was on his side and, and pled his cause, praise God, that he was able to do that. One thing that St. John Vianney was known for, he was known for sanctity. He was known for 
um, always pursuing holiness. Who's holy? God is holy. Who do we pursue? We, we pursue. We pursue. Pursue God, and God alone. So Saint John Vianney, again, 19th century French priest, and he's known as the Curé of Ars because Ars was a community to which he was sent in order to be the, the pastor of the people there. It was a difficult life, a time in the life of the church, especially in France, very turbulent times where many people were turning away from the faith and they're really not living out their faith, similar to what we are living in right now. When he was sent there, his bishop gave him this command. He says, there's not a lot of love for God in that community amongst those people. He said, it will be your duty, your responsibility to place it in their hearts. That's quite, that's quite the task. Because they were living godless lives, secular lives, of this, living a life as if God does not exist. So, St. John Vianney was sent to this little town. And as the story goes, it was getting dark, and it was, uh, the sun was starting to come down, and he, 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 he was lost. He lost his way on the way to ours. The story goes, he comes upon... Uh, a young boy, and he asked the young boy, uh, can you show me the way to ours? And the young boy simply says, ours is over there. And he says, thank you, you've shown me the way to ours, and all I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the way to heaven. That's what a spiritual father does. That's what a priest is to do, to serve as that mediator between God and man, uh, to show the faithful the way to heaven. That's why it's sad whenever a priest does anything that is contrary to that. Very sad when somebody does something who has dam is, is damaged the faithful. So a priest's role, a father's role, is to provide, to care, to protect, to love. And as St. John Vianney understood this, the greatest way that he could do that was by showing the faithful the way to heaven. St. John Vianney arrived, as I said, in the middle of the night. And so you might imagine here he is in his first assignment and thinking about all the sorts of things that he, 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 he should do. What is it that he should do first? And you might imagine he was maybe taking out some paper and he was writing, okay, here's my little day. These are the things that I want to do. You know, meet with this person, meet with this person, go to this group, establish this group, all these different things. He could have done that. But what St. John, uh, John Marie Vianney did was he did the most important thing that he could do. And he knew that this was the most important thing. He was about God's work. And what is the primary work of God? But the primary work is a liturgy. The primary work of God is a celebration of the sacrifice of the Mass. So the very first thing he did was he went to this little church, this little tiny little chapel, all dilapidated, falling down, things really weren't prepared, and he made sure that everything was prepared and it was prepared for Mass. And so a time came for Mass. He rang the bell, what was left of the bell, and he called the people to the liturgy. Again, similarly to what we do here. Ring the bell, everybody comes to the, to the chapel. If something special is going to take place. And they said that there were some people who came who were very faithful Catholics and who had really longed for this moment. But they said there were also some people that came that were just, well, let's see who the new guy is. Well, let's see how, the, how long this new guy is going to last. But he understood what he was doing was the most important thing that he could do as being the shepherd entrusted and having this flock entrusted to him, the greatest thing that he could do was to break open the word within the celebration of the sacrifice of the mass, to offer this mass and to feed the faithful 
with the Eucharist to impart the very own life of Jesus within them, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Why did he do this? He did this because he was a faithful priest. He did this because he understood the mystery that had been entrusted to him, and he was being a very, very good steward of that mystery. That's a priest. That's a priest who is pursuing holiness, and also a priest who is leading his people deeper and deeper into holiness as well. One little side story, this is always one of my favorite stories about St. John Vianney, is that there were a couple times he tried to leave. He had a great gift. He, the Lord had given him the gift of being able to read souls to the point where he would sit in his confessional for sometimes up to 18 hours at a time. And people would come not only from ours and around the surrounding village, but from all over. They would come all over to go to the confession to this saintly priest. So you can imagine how difficult his life uh, was. And there were a couple times, two, three times, when he tried to leave, tried to leave uh, the village, but they kept bringing him back, kept bringing him back, kept bringing him back. So there, you know, our Lord never had 100%, so it's not surprising that priests never have 100%. And uh, there were a group of women, a particular group of women, who did not like him at all, primarily because he shook things up, challenged people, called them on their bad behaviors, and called them to something much higher. And so there was this group of women, and they would see St. John Vianney when they were passing him by in the little village, little town, and they would say to the Father, Father, would you uh, pray for a special intention that we have? Being the good priest that he was, he'd say, yes, I'll pray for that special intention. Now, it didn't come out until later after he died, much later and after he died, that the special intention that they were asking him to pray for was that he would leave. But you know that when they talk about prayer, you know, we have intentions. Maybe we're praying for someone. Maybe we're praying for someone's heart to be changed. But really what happens is our hearts are changed more. And, and so those women who were asking St. John Vianney to pray for that he would leave, you would think that their hearts over a period of time uh, became softened. And they were much, or more, they were much um, more open to the will of God in their life. And you can also trust that St. John Vianney in receiving that intention and offering over to the Lord was praying for the personal conversion of those ladies as well as everyone in his, in his parish. So what a saintly man. What a great example, not only for priests, but a, an example for all of us. So as we conclude this morning conference, and we prepare ourselves for some to receive uh, the sacrament of penance and confession. Uh, let us conclude with, again, one of my favorite prayers. This comes from our new saint, St. Uh, John Henry Newman, and this is his daily prayer. You can go online and find it. I think it's something that's great and a good thing to commit to memory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May the Lord support us all the day long till the shades lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then in his mercy, may he give us a safe lodging, a holy rest and a peace at last, amen. St. John Vianney, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.